Well, it's Monday, the 11th of October. I'm Alec Hogg, and it's a warm welcome to today's edition of the Biz News Power Hour. We've got a lot of interesting stuff coming up for you. Some sad, some exciting, and I guess some way in between. The uh, program kicks off, as per usual, with our partners in London, the Financial Times, bringing us up to date on the international news, and there's a jam-packed session there, as per usual. And then we have the sad. Alan Greenblow, a colleague of mine, in fact, one of my very first bosses, one of my first mentors, and a man that I have the highest regard for, passed away at uh, 3.45 a.m. this morning, a, a stalwart in the financial journalism and Jewish community, and as a, a really great South African, uh, Alan is going to be very sorely missed. Stuart Lohman and I had a conversation about him. I hope that you'll find that interesting, and of course, all of our Thoughts go to his widow of 39 and a half years of marriage, Rihanna, and the family, of course, his daughter, Mia. Then we'll hear from Justin Rowe Roberts talking with David Shapiro on the latest in the investment markets. And then we have an interview with Wayne Duvenage. Well, you might have picked up this morning that the electioneering has got into a full cry and part of the electioneering is at last, the uh, uh, the Gauteng etols are going to be dispensed with. Wayne has been fighting against etols, uh, well, right from the beginning of Outer, which he created, and he's got some very interesting insights on what is going to happen next. We will also then hear from Andre Celia, who talks to uh, Bronwyn Nielsen about what's been going on in the currency markets. Bronwyn, as per usual asking Andre all the difficult questions. But that's all coming up in the show tonight. Before that, we want to find out what's been going on in the markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, as per usual, let's pick up with the news headlines of the day. And here's my colleague, Nadia Swart. Nadia? African business sentiment dropped to a one-year low in September as economic activity continued to be hamstrung by restrictions to curb the coronavirus pandemic and unease persisted following deadly riots in July. A confidence index compiled by the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry dropped to 91 from 91.9 in August, the group said on Monday. The present business climate appears to have leveled out with the Business Confidence Index maintaining pre-COVID-19 levels, it said. Compared to a year ago when the business climate was still on its initial recovery path, the September 2021 level of the Business Confidence Index reflects a much improved business climate despite the lagged effects of the July 2021 disruptions. While Africa's most industrialized economy continues to benefit from a windfall as a result of high international commodity prices, it is imperative that output expands by more than 3% a year, the Chamber said. Both the Hawks and SARS are circling in on companies that scored millions from dodgy PPE contracts in South Africa, with at least 33 companies connected to politically exposed individuals in the crosshairs. Despite the SAPS's claims that it has been cleared of wrongdoing in the rampant looting of PPE contracts, the Hawks have announced that investigations are underway. SARS, meanwhile, is looking at 52 companies that received money from PPE contracts and have been non-compliant in their tax affairs. The companies in question received 1 billion rand in contracts. South Africa's politicians are into full campaign mode, with parties spreading out over the weekend to shoot their shot with the electorate. The DA's campaigning around Cape Town hit a hurdle when the party contradicted statements from its leader, John Steenhuizen, about using golf courses as land for development, while the ANC has continued its strategy of admitting it has not done enough and promising to do more. However, the ruling party made it clear that it is not looking at coalitions or partnerships in any municipality, saying it's all or nothing for governance in the country. And now it's back to Alec for the market report. 
Thanks, Nadia. Well, the markets uh, are not worrying about the elections at all. Uh, All of the major indices on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange in the green today. Resources leading the way, more than 3% improvement. Maybe they were listening closely to the optimism coming out of last week's Joburg in Darba. That uh, pulled the all-share index up by about one and two-third percent. Uh, Industrials are about one percent stronger and uh, metals and mining also were up by about 1%. The gold price are trading at $1,760 an ounce, a very small move. In rands, however, uh, it was a little stronger than that, uh, up by around 96 rand an ounce, and a Kruger rand is now worth 26,300 rand per ounce. Uh, the Brent crude price has been moving very sharply higher on international markets and is now way above 80, getting towards the $85 a barrel mark. Both platinum and palladium were steady at uh, the levels of around $1,000 and $2,100. As far as the individual movers are concerned on the market today, well, with the continued growth in or rise in the international oil price, not surprising to see Sassel at um, another four rand fifty a share, and that's just below three hundred rand a share at the moment, sitting at two ninety one eighty three. Biggest mover on the day though was Kumba Iron Ore. You might recall that iron ore prices have come down from around two hundred and fifty um, do- uh, dollars a ton to under $100 a tonne, and Kumba Iron Ore has fallen along with that. Well, a slightly firmer day today saw that share price shooting up by 7%. Supergroup, an industrial company, was the second biggest of the risers. That was up 6% and just behind it, Sappy. And then Anglo-American benefiting from the resources improvement. That was 5% higher uh, on nearly uh, a similar amount, and you would imagine BHP and Glencore also uh, 4% or better. On the way down, the losers today were Bites and the speculative uh, Steinhoff, uh, while Soho Sun, after a good run last week on the opening of the international, um, well, the last of the, the uh, major tourism uh, destinations coming into South Africa from the UK, uh, that gave up about 2.5% today. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, October 11th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The IMF holds its big annual meetings this week, but all the talk is over whether the fund's chief should keep her job. We'll talk about China's electric vehicle battery maker, BYD, and its plans to go global. And our science editor, Clive Cookson, shares his reporting on a potential new treatment for depression. So it's desperately needed medically, and also it's exciting technology. I'm Lauren Fedor, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The International Monetary Fund kicks off its annual gathering today, with the fate of the fund's leader very much in doubt. Kristalina Georgieva has been accused of manipulating data to favor China while she was at the World Bank several years ago. The scandal has divided IMF members, with the U.S. pushing for her to go and European powers wanting her to stay. Here's the FT's Colby Smith. Well, it's very, very awkward. I, I don't really know other, another way to describe it. I mean, you have the executive board uh, split into two camps at this point. So uh, the U.S. and Japan, which are the fund's two biggest shareholders, are on one side. And you have France, Germany, Italy, and the U.K. lining up in support of Georgieva. And according to people familiar with the matter, uh, you know, China and Russia are also aligned with the Europeans on this issue. I think more Broadly, what's important is what this all means for the fund going forward. So we heard from many people uh, who are close to the fund, have worked in you know very senior positions at the fund, say, if the fund is putting out various reports or, or publications, are people going to now question the veracity and the integrity of those reports? And I think that's actually kind of at the crux of the, the matter. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. One of the world's biggest electric vehicle battery makers is the Chinese company BYD. It also makes electric vehicles, which sell well in China. But now the company wants to compete globally. 
To find out more, I'm joined by the FT's Henry Sanderson. Hi, Henry. Hi. So BYD is already well-known among big global investors. One early backer was Warren Buffett. What did he see in the company? Yeah, so Buffett um, invested at the end of 2008, you know, the, the beginning of the financial crisis. And BYD's founder, uh, Wang Chuanfu, who's incredibly hardworking, you know, he works at the, the factory till 11 every night. He really won Buffett over. And the story was that Buffett offered to buy even more of BYD, but Wang refused, which Buffett took as a good sign. That has paid off hugely. I mean, shares since then are up over 3,000%. And it, I think it's one of Buffett's best investments, you know, after Apple, at least in, in one of his top investments. Henry, can you talk a little bit about the technology in BYD's battery? Yeah, so most electric vehicle batteries outside of China use what's called uh, NMC or NCA technology. So they contain lithium, but also cobalt, um, nickel and, and manganese. And what BYD has done is turn to another chemistry or another technology called LFP, which just uses lithium, iron and phosphate, which are all you know, abundant materials in the Earth's crust. And they've really re-engineered this technology to improve it and to make it viable, basically, for electric cars and longer range electric cars. Um, so the significance is, you know, you get a cheaper battery and you don't have all these other metals in it. And how big of an advantage is this? Yeah, I think this is a huge advantage. And, you know, if we're looking at mass market EVs, you know, if we're looking at replacing huge numbers of the car with EVs, you know, it's going to put huge strain on on the mining industry and getting hold of enough cobalt and nickel. And cobalt, over 60%, 70% comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo and nickel is also a huge issue because a lot of it, you know, is being mined in Indonesia where, you know, it takes up a lot of land to mine nickel. So BYD's battery technology, you know, it will take the strain off um, some of those supply chains. So BYD has this cutting edge battery, but it also makes its own cars. You've written about how it's shipping those SUVs to Norway, right? Yeah, so BYD, I mean, ever since Buffett bought the stake in it, you know, it's wanted to be um, a global company and actually has exported loads of electric buses around the world. I mean, even in London, where I am, you know, quite a few of the buses are BYD buses and they're all over Europe. They're in, they're in South America, they're in the US. So it already has experience selling electric buses to, to loads of cities. But now I want to export passenger EV cars and it's starting with Norway, which is fascinating because Norway is just becoming a very um, competitive sort of test market for a lot of these Chinese companies. And is that where they see the real growth in cars? I think, yes, they see growth in, in electric cars, but they're also very open to share their technology with other car makers. And so they're, they're talking to Tesla, they're talking to other car makers about selling, you know, just their batteries and they want to list that battery business on the stock market as a separate business. So they're very open to helping other car makers, which is unusual. The big question, you know, what analysts have told me is, you know, will car makers trust getting batteries from BYD when at the same time they're a competitor, right? They're also producing the cars themselves. So that's a sort of big question as well. Henry Sanderson is the FT's commodities correspondent. Thanks, Henry. Thanks very much. Our science editor, Clive Cookson, has just reported on a potential new treatment for depression. A recent study shows that this debilitating illness could be eased using carefully targeted neural electronics. The trials took place at the University of California, San Francisco. Clive joins me now. Hi, Clive. Hi, Lauren. So a lot of trials come across your desk. What was it about this one that caught your eye? Partly because depression is such a scourge of public health around the world. The World Health Organization estimates there are 280 million people suffering from depression, serious depression. And the bad thing is that in about 30% of cases, existing treatments, drugs and ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, and of course, talking therapy, psychotherapy, they just don't work. So it's desperately needed medically. And also, it's exciting technology. And this seems like an excellent and very rewarding application of neurotech. How does the technology work? It's a form of deep brain stimulation. And it's the most sophisticated form used so far. Essentially, the 
neurosurgeons at UCSF fitted an implant just under the skull of the patient, whom we're calling Sarah. She doesn't want her full name to be used. And from that implant, there are two fine wires extending deep into her brain, going to different regions of the brain. And the point of this is that one electrode detects signs of depressive feelings, bad sort of downward spiral in Sarah's mood, and the other stimulates a different brain area, which is associated with rewards and pleasure. And when those two are associated, when the depressive feelings come on, stimulation of the other area lifts it immediately. I mean, Sarah, the patient, when she was speaking to journalists at the press briefing to launch this study, was just ecstatic about the difference it has made to her life. And how big was the trial? Were there many other people in it besides Sarah? Well, that is the weakness of this. It's what scientists call an N equals one trial. She is the only patient for whom there are results, but it's being extended. They have enlisted, enrolled a couple more who are starting, and the idea is to do 12 altogether in this trial. I think you've written about this in the past, but deep brain stimulation has been used to treat epilepsy and Parkinson's disease. Were there obstacles here to using it in treating depression? Yes, depression is a much harder target because for epilepsy and Parkinson's, the areas of the brain responsible for those disorders were well known, so they knew where to target the stimulus. With depression, the brain circuits involved were and are much more mysterious. So they had to do quite a lot of gentle probing of Sarah's brains to find the two places where it would work. Do you think this treatment could be used for other forms of mental illness? I think if this proves itself, there are a lot of mood and anxiety disorders like OCD where it could be used. The biggest challenge, I think, is going to be to show that it works in depression. And remember, this is an invasive surgical technique, and it's expensive. For this first trial, they used a $30,000 implant, which was originally developed for epilepsy, and they had adapted it for their depression trial. And then there are all the associated costs. So although it could be used for some patients with the most severe long-term intractable depression, such as Sarah had, it'll need to be simplified and made far cheaper in the long run if it's going to make an impact on depression or in other psychiatric illnesses. So an exciting development, but still a long way to go. Yes, it is. Clive Cookson is the FT's science editor. Thanks, Clive. Thanks, Lauren. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Alan Greenblow passed away earlier today. Alec, you knew him quite well. I knew him very well, uh, Stu. We were colleagues. He was my boss in 1981. It uh, was that 40 years ago. I was a young whippersnapper, came up from KwaZulu-Natal, got a job at The Citizen, then the Rand Daily Mail, and then uh, Alan was one of the three guys who started a publication called Finance Week, which I think is called Fin Week today, and it's bought by NASPAS. But uh, that was a, it was a phenomenal publication. These were guys who worked at the Financial Mail, and they didn't like the new boss at the Financial Mail. They'd worked for a, a, a giant in financial journalism called George Palmer, and when George Palmer left, he passed over the baton to Graham Hatton, I think the man's name was. I didn't know either of those two. And the, a number of the staff didn't like uh, Graham Hatton, and including Greenblow. And Greenblow, Richard Rolfe, and Stuart Murray were the three main movers in starting Finance Week as a uh, competitor, a challenger to the financial mail, which was – really the dominant player in the financial journalism market back then. And in 1981, they hired me. And uh, Alan was the one who paid a lot. He, he took in, an interest in me. Now, here was this, this uh, really top uh, journalist who 
had very a uh, very high uh, profile and uh, very strong integrity and ethics, and he taught me a lot. I was going to say, as a young journalist, what was the lasting legacy? You know, obviously it's forty years later that you would have taken from those early days. Everything, everything. I, I would say uh, much of what we stand for today at Biz News is. Thanks to a guy like, well, thanks to Greenblow. He, and let me tell you about Alan. He, he came from Cape Town. Uh, he uh, was the Cape editor for the Financial Mail. Then he did property, so he knew a lot about the property sector. Uh, when he became the uh, editor of uh, Finance Week after Richard Rolfe left the scene, and he, he edited it for 13 years, it was always a publication that stood for something. It always stood for integrity. It always took on the government. It took on the – he almost had that Jewish thing, you know, the the, the, the Jewish thing about uh, not uh, – of standing up to intolerance or, or to, um, to those who uh, were taking advantage of, of the underdogs, the suppressed. Yeah. And that was Alan. That was him to a T. And he never lost that. He was – Always the kind of person who knew because he read a lot. He read uh, Rihanna, his wife. I was talking to her this morning, and Alan actually died at quarter to four uh, this morning only. And she said to me that Alan read more books than everybody else that she knows combined. He's that kind of guy. Very into lifelong learning. Very into the fact in journalism that – it's about balance. It's not about what you think. It's about you finding both sides of the story and giving both sides of the story their voice. Because quite often, and he drilled this into me, quite often what you think is right is not actually the truth because you haven't heard the other side of the story. He would often read uh, papers from the courts, something that isn't well uh, used nowadays in journalism anymore. But I guess many years ago, a young journalist would start as a court reporter and you'd learn the hard way that there are always two affidavits, not just one. The one affidavit, you don't report ever an affidavit because you've got to put the other side of the story as well. Of course, nowadays, uh, if it suits the approach that you, you're taking, then the one affidavit is just fine. But you've got to have the other side of the story. And that was the kind of person and journalist that Alan Greenblow was. He was a uh, an icon for the era. He's, he then left, when he left Finance Week, that was a, a quite a scandal in itself, nothing to do with, the, with any impropriety on his side. But he departed Finance Week and then became the managing director of BDFM which was a 50-50 joint venture between the Financial Times of London and uh, what is now known as Arena. And that looked after Financial Mail and Business Day. And he ran as MD there in the early 90s for some years. And then in 2005, decided to go on his own and he started Today's Trustee. Now, I know we've had here at Business News, we've had a bit to do with Today's Trustee, but Today's Trustee is what Rihanna, uh, Mrs. Greenblow, says is Alan's true legacy. Although he made a huge impact for South Africa during the, uh, his time at Finance Week, which was a, a very uh, vibrant, um, independent publication when it was under his editorship, and also when he was the MD of BDFM. But today's trustee was highly niched and serving – a, a group of people who have incredible power but not always a heck of a lot of knowledge. Those who are trustees of retirement funds in South Africa, they act on behalf of millions and millions of people, but they don't really go through any formal training. You could be plucked out of a trade union or from an uh, organization at a company and put into that position as being a trustee, and there you've got to – Remember that you've always got to put the members' interests first, yet there is huge lobbying from the financial institutions who are wanting to manage those funds because they get 
handsomely paid for managing retirement funds. It's a big business. And Alan was there to serve the trustees, to tell the trustees how they should be acting, uh, what it means, unpacking a lot of the lobbyist kind of messages, giving the other side of the story. And he's been running that for, he had been running that for 16 years. And lo- only last week, uh, Rihanna says they had a meeting where they were planning the next phase for today's trustee. And sadly on, on Saturday, she says he was absolutely fit as a fiddle, it appeared. On Sunday, he got sick and, um, early Monday morning, this morning, Alan passed away. It wasn't, didn't have anything to do with COVID, by the way. I know his Twitter handle is at Harry Bulldog. I'm sure that played to his personality. I think that that's right. He also loved bulldogs. Uh, so, and he loved Churchill. Rihanna says the, there wasn't a book on Churchill that Alan hadn't read. So Churchill, the British bulldog, I guess is, is that reflection also at Harry Bulldog is, is quite appropriate because when Greenblow got his teeth into something, uh, he didn't let go. And he always did, in my opinion, what was right. Uh, from from watching him over many, many years, well, 40 years, literally. Uh, the, whatever he stood for, he stood for for the right reasons. He he made the uh, the case for the underdog. He made the unpopular case. And he was also a man of great intellect and great uh, religious um, or great faith. There's a there's a there's a place in the synagogue that is going to be empty in future, that the Jewish community of Johannesburg will know. That was where Greenblow sat for decades. So he, I remember having some quite deep conversations with him fairly recently in the last three, four, five years, uh, where he, he, he really did study a lot about faith and a lot about uh, what happens, what really happens, what's really important in the world. So he had these, uh, a multifaceted personality, as we all do have, but he has this, had this depth to him, uh, which wouldn't necessarily have been understood just coming in from the outside as as being you know, one of the top journalists in South Africa. So he was a he was a mensch, I suppose, and uh, it was a good way of describing it. And sorely, sorely missed. I do hope that today's trustee continues to flourish into the future and to to serve as the legacy of a man who really was out there, believed that South Africa had lost its way recently, and you can get that from his readings. He's very worried about the the direction the country was taking. But on the other hand, he was never one who would not have supported uh, what was best for the country. And he always tried his best to 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 stand up against things that, that weren't working. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's Investment Insights is Sassfin Securities' David Shapiro. The front page of Business Day reads, BNB Paribas expects around at 14 rand 25 to the dollar by year end on healthy current account. The currency markets are notoriously hard to predict, especially short-term movements. I know offshore equities have been your preferred investment destination of choice. Is that specifically company or growth related, or have you also taken a stance on the rand weakening? No, I never take a... I never take a stance on the currency. It's just impossible to try and read it. So, Justin, when, when, when I choose companies, I look at the underlying businesses, where they're going to be in five years, and there's so much excitement at the moment, but to try and read where the currency is going to trade is impossible. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not going to doubt the 1425 because uh, you know, it, it can happen with great speed. If it does happen, believe me, it's going to be good for the equities we're buying. It means that uh, that people are, you know, no longer that, that the, the inflation worries and all the other concerns that, that are unsettling markets. I don't want to see almost disturbing markets at the moment will have vanished and people are buying um, equities again. That's what will drive the rand down to about fourteen twenty-five. I think it's much more dollar-related, much more global um, markets-related than perhaps. The current account deficit or any uh, local specific news. What's the biggest threat or risk to markets in your opinion at the moment? I heard you mention inflation now and many mm-hmm. analysts are talking about that, the oil price going above $80 a barrel. Ominous signs? Short term. 
<laughs> Short term, we don't know. Justin, we're coming out of this pandemic, and I, and I think if we look at Friday's numbers, the jobs report, you know, I always look, uh, I haven't got anybody behind me. I haven't got a great research team in front of me. You know, one has to make your own opinions on your own readings. Yes, you get a few opinions from friends or other people, uh, co-workers and that. But I mean, on Friday, the view in, in the United States was that the jobs were going, they're going to be 500,000 new jobs created. We come out with 190. And you say, hold on a sec. <laughs> what went wrong? These are professionals. These are chaps who understand it a lot better than, 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 than I do. But what I'm trying to identify is just how difficult it is to read the market at the moment. We kind of know where we're heading. But I mean, uh, the distortions that are being caused uh, are going to take some time to, to filter their way through. So um, I'm, 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 I'm not, uh, I'm watching the risks. I'm watching the oil price because uh, I think that was one distortion that we never expected to happen. We always thought there was a glut of oil around and certainly in gas. I mean, no one ever thought that gas prices would be where they are. They're actually leading oil prices. It's always been the, the other way around. So I think we've got to keep a keen eye on, on, on that and whether that could derail the recovery that we're seeing. The recovery is slowing down as expected uh, for various reasons is that, you know, everybody's spending their savings that they made in 2020 and eventually they'll exhaust that. But I mean, those are some of the areas that, that we have to watch very carefully. So, yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm not put out. I think the markets are holding up well. How do you position yourself from an investment perspective in an inflationary environment? Uh, you've got to look for companies that are going to be able to, when I say beat it, in other words, are going to be able to increase productivity, uh, increase the top line, uh, and, and be able to, uh, you know, to combat uh, inflation. And I think a lot of those, the inflation that we're seeing, I think a lot of it is kind of short term. You know, it's oil prices, uh, um, import price, when I say import prices, shipping prices and that, which I think will kind of settle down in a few months. But I mean, in the meantime, it, 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 it is disturbing the equilibrium and it could impact on, uh, you know, on, on some profitability. But you have to look for strong companies, you know, powerful companies that are able to pass on some of the increases. Um, or alternatively, if they're not passing on that, they have a loyal customer base that is not going to be affected in the short term. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, there's no easy answer. Let me put it that way. You've got to do your research. You know, you've got to understand the businesses and say, can we negotiate? You know, can we get through this period? Are these companies strong enough to get through where we are at the moment? A massive bounce back by the commodity counters last week. Some precious mm -hmm. metals producers, such as Northern Platinum, up as much as 30% for the whole week. Besides the underlying commodity prices increasing, is there anything more to the sharp reversal? Well, I don't know. You explain that to me. You know, I, <laughs> I just sit here in wonderment, you know, and I saw on Thursday, Friday, there was a huge, huge gain. In fact, if we look today, palladium prices, which have fallen well below $2,000 an ounce, are now back. The last I looked was 2150 So there's been a huge turnaround of platinum price. I think a lot has to do with, with China as well. I, I think palladium and platinum prices were taken down by the drop that we saw in motor manufacturing because of the chip shortage. You know, that could be alleviated. Um, we don't know the full dynamics, you know, uh, in, in, in those commodity trading is notoriously fickle. So you have to be very careful. But I think, I, I also think that some of the noises coming out of China at the moment are much more uh, conciliatory, easing. We've seen also, the bounce back in, in Alibaba, in Tencent, in Pinduoduo, in Meituan, you know, all these Chinese companies that were uh, hit hard by the crackdown of the Chinese authority, they're starting to come back. And, and, and I think perhaps there's a little bit of easing on uh, the Chinese authorities' part that is giving markets comfort. You know, we've seen iron ore price come back from where from 90 to 120. You know, also 25% increase. So, yes, it was it was at 220, went down to 90 and was picking up. But but it's in the right direction. I, you know, I'm, I'm much more comfortable now that it's it's found a base and is picking up from these levels. How liquid is the commodities futures market, David? We see these huge bounces in prices. They're like yo-yos. No, they're massive. 
they, they're huge, you know, and they have, they have always been huge. Remember, that's where it was always in the commodity market that futures started. You know, financial futures is, is something new. Right from biblical times, there was always some middle person, you know, who's buying the wheat crop and selling it on. Uh, so they've always been dynamic, uh, always been dynamic markets. You know, so that's where Chicago started um, in, in, in uh, those companies. And uh, it's a very vibrant, active market. And for outsiders, extremely dangerous. You know, just do not tamper with it. Do not think you can read them. You know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult market and, and highly professional. It's risky enough buying the commodity counters themselves. <laughs> but onto the JSC, two small caps, Solaris and CSG Holdings announced their intentions to be bought out and delisted from the JSC earlier this morning. This trend yeah. is continuing unabated. Yeah. If you were Leila Faree, what would you do as the investment horizon on the local bus is getting markedly smaller by the mm. month? Yeah, she's picked, she's picked this up. It's not, uh, it's very difficult for her. You know what I mean? It's, it's, these are tiny companies and I've, I'm quite sad about it because I think there's good value um, in some of the smaller companies. Justin, I think you have to understand the trend. You know, the trend towards passive has also been responsible for it because you have these armies of financial advisors going out there and they always play it safe by hugging the index. So no one ever moves out of the comfort zone of the, of the large caps or the indices. So to, you know, a number of really good small businesses are just ignored. And the danger is that they're being picked up by private equity and that's becoming where the action's going to be. Um, you know, we, all the time, I, I, I identify, I, go, I try to go through all the results and I you know, identify some really good small operations that, that are great for, for individual investors, people who are running their own portfolios, but I don't—it's—it's a, it's a global trend. But I—I I, I find it sad from a you know from a JSE point of view. How does Layla handle it? Well, we we try to get competitions going and uh, bringing people onto uh, you know forums where they can discuss some of these small companies and that, and try to get some activity around. That. You know, just have a look at people like Pittsburgh Union who are making a huge. Huge fortunes and, and doing very well. Their performance is great by identifying some of these smaller businesses. Is a delisting route, as you've seen in the last few years, indicative of a cheap market? And on the contrary, is the IPO boom in the US and other parts of the world signs that offshore equities might be expensive? Uh, no, the IP, those are dynamic markets. And, and you, have to, you have to look, what are the IPOs? They mainly tech-driven. And, and, and that's where we're missing out. You know, we're, a not, we're not a tech market. Hold on a sec. We're not alone. Go to the UK. You've got exactly the same kind of thing. Find me a tech company in the UK. You know, what, what, what is the UK market? And we're talking about the FTSE. So there's nothing there that's, that, that's it, it's mainly financials, uh, one or two uh, pharmaceutical companies, and to a large extent, energy companies, which is old economy. Australia to a large extent. So there are a number of markets that have not modernized. Which are the modern markets? Are the US and, and, and Asia. Funny enough, in Amsterdam as well, you're starting to get some good tech players. So I think this is a sign of where growth is going, you know, where, um, where, where equity growth is going, where economic growth is going. So we've got to build a tech hub. You know, we've got to find those businesses again and start to build up um, IPOs in that kind of region. That's where we're missing. So it's not Layla's fault. It's, it's really economic conditions here. Well, you know, it's elections when e-tolls get put back on the agenda. And that's exactly what is happening in Gauteng at the moment. Joining us now is Outer's founder and chief executive and the chief protagonist against ETOLs, Wayne Duvenage. Wayne, uh, why is this such a difficult issue to resolve, i.e. scrapping or not scrapping? Yeah, it's very strange. You must, you must remember that initially provincial government supported this decision. Uh, Nomvula Mokanyane was the premier at the time uh, and the ruling party through national government. Everybody was on board with this plan, this idea that was sold to them by Sanrel, that it was workable. All our research said otherwise. 
We tried to stop this in court, became very messy and technical. And so we had to challenge this in a number of ways. And the one way is to say, well, <clears throat> there's a collateral challenge opportunity and we're going to defend the public if they are if they are ever summoned with ETOLs, which is what we set out to do. And government abandoned this test case, this this the massive amount of cases that they were trying to summons. And ever since then, they've been unable to enforce their own laws on the ETOL matter. They cannot blacklist you. They cannot withhold your licenses. They cannot criminalize you. They cannot force you to pay. So they have an, a law that they can't even manage. And the compliance rates have been, you know, for a user pay scheme, sitting at below 15% now. We estimate even closer to to probably 12% of people paying for a user pay scheme. Well, that's collapsed. So the question you ask is, well, why are they taking so long to make this decision? And that's the question we're asking of them because we've provided them with alternatives, with the solutions, which, by the way, they're already applying. They're getting the money from Treasury, which is where the money should have come from right in the beginning. And yet they still continue to kick this can down the road. The regional or the, the provincial government is now turned its back on ETOLs as the David Makura came into power in 2014. And the, um, the scheme has now proved fruitless. It's, it's just a waste of time. It's barely covering the administration costs. So we cannot understand why they can't make a very simple decision and reverse the original plan and fund these roads because we have to fund them through treasury receipts. The fuel levy feeds into that, by the way. Had they done what we suggested many years ago, they would have already paid for the bonds, 10 cents in the, up in the fuel levy. And they've already increased the fuel levy by over three rand since then. So they've got the money. They've got the ability. These are, these are government-backed bonds. They can finance them through government. It's minuscule in the greater scheme of things. But, not, you know, it's far smaller than the way Eskom and other entities are. It beats us other than maybe maybe some entities, maybe some service providers who are, who are who are providing services to electronic toll company are enjoying some of this revenue of about 50 to 40 million a month. What is the government so concerned about if it were to scrap e-tolls? It's a good question. And, and, and some people have put it to us, but, you know, to cancel the contracts is too expensive, but that doesn't fly because the ETC contract has expired. They expired uh, two and a half years ago. Um, so there's no contractual obligation, there's no penalties, there's no fees, um, there's no money that's going towards the bonds. In other words, another argument could be, but if you scrap it, then then they're in a worse off position. They're not because the money they're collecting, which was 650 million rand last year, that literally all of it went to ETC to collect that money. So all you do is pay for the collection, but that now... That amount dropped last year to four, the last financial year to 453 million rand for the year. So they're even worse off. And I know COVID might have had something to do because there was less travel on the roads. Nonetheless, so, so there's no contractual obligation. There's no lost money to the bonds. There's no reason why they cannot scrap the scheme. All it means is that the minister has to reverse the decision that was made by Minister Redebe at the time in 2008. And that is to declare the Gauteng freeways non-tolled roads. It doesn't do anything negatively in that regard, nothing at all. So we can't understand it. So why is this matter still on the table? If we do have ways to collect money for maintaining highways and roads elsewhere? You know, they're not collecting any money for maintenance from ETOLs with less than 15% paying. As I said, they're only collecting to pay the collector, collectors. There's nothing preventing them. They can reverse the law. They can switch off the system tomorrow. They can put it to other use, by the way, use it for uh, average speed over distance, monitoring traffic fines, looking for looking for stolen vehicles, law enforcement. They are the uses for those gantries. But as far as e-tolling goes, it's just a no-brainer to stop tolling because I think the minute they do stop tolling, by the way, there'll be a bigger uptake for the tags for the long-distance tolling uh, uh, routes that people would want to use so that they can get through those uh, stop and go toll plazas a lot more efficiently. They would, it would be in the government's best interest to stop this. So why they continue with it, uh, we don't know, other than possibly government has been dealt a blow by civil society. Possibly government doesn't want to acknowledge and admit that civil society has called them out, stood their ground, run a civil disobedience campaign against their own laws and won. That might may not be good for politics. Who knows? 
but but to continue kicking this can down the road and allowing uh, 40 million rand or so to be paid over to ETC uh, to pay for themselves and their service providers. Now, maybe there's a couple of companies that are enjoying some of that revenue, but it's certainly not the 300 million that they needed to make the scheme work. It's a pittance. What about the obvious government tier discrepancies between national and provincial, i.e. national being pro-ETOLs and governments in the local areas being anti-ETOLs? Well, I think at a national government level, it's a little bit more complex in that you've got uh, finance, you've had various finance ministers. Uh, I think they're grappling with this concept. They, they Maybe they don't know all the issues, and I'll tell you why I say that, is I remember conversing with somebody in Treasury a little while ago to saying, uh, who said, look, we can't stop the scheme because it's going to just be too expensive to get out of the contracts. And I explained to the individual that's not true because the contracts have expired. There's nothing to, there's no penalties. And he was quite taken aback by that. He said, but that's not true. I said, well, you show me otherwise. Here's the contract. It's a five-year contract, which was up in 2017. We're now, uh, I mean, in 2019, we're now in 2021. Uh, You know, so there's no contractual obligation. So I think there's a bit of confusion at Treasury level. You know, another thing is that Treasury, uh, through the Department of Finance, has already been uh, funding uh, Sanral for the Gauteng Freeway Improvement Bonds. They have been giving them over 11 billion rand in the last number of years. It's in their financials. So it's not as if they haven't been funding them. Uh, and they find that revenue. And, and the money is coming through the fuel levies. And remember, Gauteng gives uh, National Treasury about 36% of its receipts. This is the economic powerhouse of South Africa. Uh, and yet this is a small province, small amount of roads. We more than pay. So the arguments are there. Everything is in their favor to say, listen, Mr. Citizen, and Mr. Gauteng, citizen, we, we are going to reverse a bad decision. Why should people be concerned about this matter? This is a matter of concern only to those who are paying rather than those who aren't? Well, that's a very good point, and that's exactly what we've been saying on time and time again. It actually is irrelevant whether the government scraps it or doesn't scrap it because the people have spoken. Nobody's paying. There's nothing that government can do about it. In fact, when you ask a lot of the public out there, you know, about ETOLs, some of them say, is this still an issue? Why are we even discussing this? So your point is a very valid one. And we say it doesn't really matter what government does because the public have won on this and government can do nothing about it. But the question you've got to ask is while the law still exists and while there are still 15%, 12 to 15% of people paying, there's still a concern. In other words, there are some companies that pay because they just want to abide by the law because government taps them on the shoulder if they stop paying because Sanral runs them and say, oh, these guys, you know, take them off the procurement list for government. So they pay, but now they're uncompetitive to other companies who have said we're not paying and they're still getting business out there. So there's an issue that until you make the – even some government departments are still paying. That's your and our tax revenue being wasted where a lot of other government departments aren't paying. So we need to get finality just for that sake, you know, so that everybody can stop paying and that the few that are paying feel they don't want to stop paying because they don't want to break the law for whatever reason. And that's what has to happen. Government must make a decision and stop. But for the 90%, uh, the 90% uh, 85% of the citizens out there, it's a no-brainer. They just move on with their lives knowing that arts has got their backs if they are summons, and, uh, and if they're not summons, nothing's going to happen to them. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities, and by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why... South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. This currency focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. With me now, Andre Siliers from Treasury One. Thanks so much for joining us here on Biz News, Andre. Let's start with the U.S. jobs data, weaker than expected, but it doesn't look as though weak enough to prevent the Fed from going ahead with its tapering 
um, modus operandi. Would you agree? Yes, I would. Um, those figures are actually quite interesting because if you look at the unemployment figure versus the non-farm payrolls, then the employment figure, unemployment figure is actually lower, but the non-farm payrolls came in at a very much lower figure as well. So a bit contradictory. Uh, and hence, the people are expecting the Federal Reserve to continue with their tapering during November. So, no change expected from the Federal Reserve side at all. Now, inflation, stagflation. Let's unpack this a little because it looks as though the train has bolted from the station. Everybody is looking to inflation with a sense of alarm and saying that, you know, if we go as far as stagflation, where you're looking at a low growth rate, high unemployment, high inflation, we're in a, in a very difficult position globally. Where do you stand on, on this side of the equation? Well, I think my personal opinion is that, you know, the central bank should just actually uh, get rid of all this quantitative easing that they've done. Uh, they should actually increase the interest rates to try and curb the inflation, uh, to avoid the stagflation. This uh, consistent uh, avoidance of increasing interest rates uh, in the name of growth, uh, I think, is the wrong path to take. And that's my standpoint. Uh, you know that I've said many a time that this continuous reluctance to move interest rates higher uh, and this so-called transitory inflation that everybody spoke of, uh, they might find that the inflation applies for political asylum uh, and then stay much longer than was anticipated. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, and the only way to get rid of that is to actually raise your interest rates. Now, I think that's one of the reasons why we are seeing that the longer yields in the Americas are actually rising a little bit uh, on the back of last week's employment figures. Isn't it too late to now look at raising rates to curtail inflation? As I said, hasn't the horse bolted, so to speak? I think the horse is on its way to the stable, yes, uh, but I don't think it's ever too late. Uh, I think there's always room to maneuver and there's always room to change things. Uh, but you need the willingness of people to do that. And that's what, we, that's what we're missing at this point in time. But I know, I don't think it's too late to actually do something uh, to stop uh, and curb any runaway inflation throughout the world. What does this all mean for the RAND, Andre? So we've been teetering around that 15 to the US dollar level. What are your forecasts? Have they changed from our recent discussion where you were looking at a, at a range uh, around about the, the 14, 50 level? I'm still retaining uh, my view uh, and keeping my view firm on that for this year. Uh, going into next year, I think we could see a change and move up above the 15 level again and, and then move into a 1520 to 1570 range quite early in the new year. Uh, but I want to get back to the inflation situation and interest rates. I sometimes wonder whether our central banks are not afraid uh, of seeing stock markets actually declining. Uh, quite significantly and losing a lot of value uh, and wiping out uh, and, and incurring quite a lot of big losses for a lot of people. Uh, because I think stock markets might be slightly overinflated uh, on the back of the low interest rate scenario that we've had so, for so many years. And I think that's one of the reasons why these people are so reluctant to change all of that. Uh, as it might have a very negative impact on stock markets if people start moving out of this overload of stocks uh, into cash markets. You know, so not too late, and I don't think uh, a correction in the stock market uh, is entirely an incorrect thing to happen.
Well, let's talk now about the risks out there. And of course, the energy crisis is looming large in China. And again, this has got a, a number of investors hot under the collar, anticipating that there will be a, a bigger fallout globally. That together with the Evergrande, uh, the um, real estate issues in China, we know Fantasia coming to the fore as well. What's your take on the news flow coming out of the East? Well, if you look at the uh, gearing of companies and debt in companies in China, then it stands at horrific uh, levels as a percentage of GDP. Uh, not a good thing at all. And that ties in, uh, and then the whole Evergrande thing is comes back to, uh, you know, the gearing of, of, of companies. Uh, and, and on top of that comes an energy crisis where people will have to cut back on manufacturing to, to get out of that because they will also have the same situation as we do uh, with a negative impact on growth. Uh, and that negative impact on growth will compound uh, in terms of the gearing of some of these companies. And hence, uh, that will be negative for emerging markets. Uh, but then, as I've just said a little earlier, that's why I say that in the beginning of next year, quite soon, we will see the RAND breaching 15 levels and go into the 1520 uh, to 1570 ranges uh, on the back of weaker emerging markets uh, and those concerns coming back to the forefront. And and oil and the energy crisis, obviously, we're looking at, you know, around about that $80 barrel level. And many forecasters saying it's going to remain stubbornly high for a while, given all the, the talk around the, the energy crisis. Is this something that you are looking to in terms of giving direction to the RAND, obviously we have that commodity underpin, but now we've got a, a double play almost coming to the fore. In some instances, you've got weaker commodities, but oil is rising. That's very negative for our economy in terms of the large amount of oil that we import uh, and the impact of that on our fuel prices uh, on and, and, and fuel is used in the logistics sector. You know, it's used throughout the manufacturing sector. Uh, so a dramatic impact and negative uh, for our inflation rate because that we could see increase. Uh, and that could bring, from a monetary point of view, uh, an increase in interest rates a little bit closer uh, to being implemented than what is expected. Uh, now, the interest rate increase as such would be positive for the RAND, uh, but longer term it would be very negative for the economy and in terms of growth. Uh, so it would be a small impact on the positive side for the RAND uh, and largely a negative impact uh, going forward. Well, the local government elections are looming ever, ever closer and that risk is not out of the window. Andre, is it becoming a keener risk in your opinion or do you think that we are going to sail through those local government elections with very little trouble? The further we get closer to the 1st of November, uh, it is my idea if I look at the news media, I look at social media, I look at what's happening around us, then I say that risk is actually subsiding slightly in terms of breaking to the negative side. Uh, and I think we can move that negativeness that I have, have seen in that area to a neutral stance at this point in time. So I don't think that will have too much of an impact on the currency at all. The election results might be interesting afterwards, uh, but I don't think that that will impact on the currency at all. Well, you've mentioned uh, looking to to breach that 15 level to the top side in the new year, uh, 1520. But are there any other risks in the environment as we get closer to year end that could cause a blowout? I mean, obviously now you've parked the, the local government elections to more of a, a neutral impact on the local currency. Anything in particular that you have your eye on that could be the next red flag? Locally, nothing really yet. Uh, I'm, I'm happy with what happens locally in South Africa. It's the international environment. 
Uh, it's any announcement by the Federal Reserve on tapering or interest rate movements. This currency focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Well, thanks for being with us today on this Monday, the 11th of October. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, from the team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.